with if that's okay with everyone. Sounds good. Well, you're there, subscribe linking to a slider on YouTube or please say oh if you want to follow it's very strange doing virtual events in the office. Yeah, I wondered if there's actually going to be in person um, this 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 particular event soon, maybe. We we are doing one event in November in person, which is a book launch in Westminster. We're going to do a book launch for the British General Election book. Well, I just think there'll be enough people in Westminster who want to come along and hear about their exploits in the general election. Uh, but apart from that, I think we're waiting until year to kick off with proper events in person again. Uh, certainly the impression I'm getting is that people who are doing things in person, just you know, just not getting very good audiences in person. I know. I don't know if that will change, but I miss it, actually, having doing these things in person. Very hard to focus on online stuff. What we're we doing? So 58. I'm a stickler for this, so we're going to start when my clock says one. <laughs> We've got 20 so far, so people are joining in now. Yeah, I mean, at this sort of time, people will be sort of sorting out their lunch and who knows what. Well, there could be worse. Um, I'd say almost it's almost like television, right? So, I mean, there could be a worse background noise uh, for having lunch. Yeah, no, that's true. Sue's just written to say they can hear us, just to remind us that before we badmouth the audience, we should realise the audience can actually hear us. <laughs> Stop doing that now. <laughs> really annoying as well. We haven't got a hard copy of the report yet, so I can't wave it around. But there will be hard copies, and you will all get a hard copy, because in my rather old-fashioned view of life, nothing exists unless it's out printed. <laughs> You can touch it. Coffee tables don't prop up themselves. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Litter the office with copies of reports that people send back to us. <laughs> All right. My thing now says one o'clock, so we're going to kick off. Welcome, everyone, to the first of our lunchtime events for a long time. And I'm delighted to say... Uh, a very topical event given the UNGA going on in New York and the recent Ferrari over the UK, Australia, <laughs> and submarines. Uh, the event is partly a standalone event, partly it's here to launch a new report on external perspectives on global Britain that you can find on our website today. And I recommend that to you most strongly. Uh, I'm delighted to welcome as our panellists here today, Dr. David Roberts, who collaborated with us in putting this report together. I hope you found the process as smooth as we did, David. Very much enjoyed it. I'm very pleased with the outcome. We have Jazine Weber, also from King's College, who authored the French chapter. I should say, on behalf of all authors, that they were not only asked to get us final versions before the American withdrawal from Afghanistan, but also clearly before the events of this week and last. Uh, but Jazine will be able to address those in her comments. And particularly delighted to have with us David Livington, former Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster. We've just established he was our longest ever serving Minister for Europe. And I don't know if you remember this, David, but almost exactly five years ago, uh, 
you came to our the formal launch six years ago actually you came to the formal launch event for uk in a changing europe which was at rusi fresh from a session in parliament and gave a very upbeat speech about how david cameron's renegotiation was going to be a massive success <laughs> uh, <laughs> how time flies so let's kick off i mean basically this is a report about how others view global britain and We'll just go around maybe in the order in which I introduce you. So starting with David and say, just on a sort of perusal of the report, what are the big takeaways for you about the ways in which people view Global Britain and what opportunities Global Britain might now enjoy? Sure. So um, thank you for for hosting us. And indeed, you know, first of all, I need to say thanks again to to the authors um, and Lizzie Allen and indeed the fantastic team at UK and a changing Europe. Um, so, um, yes, I, I will sit here and take all the credit for their, for their work. What can I say? I just want to go through a couple of cross-cutting issues, perhaps. That um, It's interesting reading. It's a lovely, diverse report um, with, with a good range of countries. And so it's quite interesting sort of taking bits out of each and finding some commonalities, as it were. So the first thing I would say, it's quite interesting reflecting on the different types of strategies so with India, we have a roadmap for 2030. With Uzbekistan in 2019, we had a partnership and cooperation agreement with Nigeria. There's an economic development forum. There's also an inquiry in House of Parliament and one of the foreign affairs committees, perhaps. Uh, in Central America, there's the UK export finance partnership and so on and so on. And so my first sort of prosaic point is with all of this multifarious sorts of strategies if that's the right phrase just within before we get to our friends abroad it'd be interesting to work out or to reflect whether there is much opportunity for that kind of cross-pollination of ideas of what worked in South America I mean it's not about copy and pasting it to Central Asia or something like that but ideas will work and not work of course and so that struck me as an interesting sort of small sort of opening gambit as it were just briefly, secondly, uh, the word I'm looking for is kind of equalness. I'm not really looking for equality. But a couple of things came out of the Nigeria and the India report, which was this slight vestige occasionally of what was described as maybe a loosely post-colonial or colonial mindset or something like that. Now, of course, this is a, a sentiment as much as anything. But I thought it was quite interesting in this kind of day and age that that sort of an idea was broached on two occasions, which makes me think, you know, where else does that kind of a concern sit in the background? Potentially, we need to be careful, depends who the we is, I suppose, with the sort of Brexit-y triumphalist sentiment to some elements of British foreign policy, harking backwards, those sorts of ideas. Just a quick note there. Sorry? No, well, sorry, I, I, something came through. My apologies. Um, but yeah, the, so that, that's, um, yeah, the second thing in terms of equalness. Thirdly, this is issue of sort of opportunities for nimbleness, um, I think is what it what kind of came across to me. Obviously, no, we can't compete with the scale and the size of the EU, but the different countries brought out different sort of little aspects and little parts where again if we are sort of nimble enough i think is the sentiment that came across maybe we can take advantage so the brazilian report 
talked about the Brazilian relationship with the EU, some of the real issues there to do with commercial negotiations and the like, and maybe even as a link into Mercosur. And again, maybe there's, there's room for sort of arbitrage there on, on the UK's part. But again, it strikes me as a we would need to be nimble to sort of avail ourselves of those opportunities. The report looking at the GCC written by um, Sarah, it turned out to be quite prophetic, I think, in many ways. Sarah was talking about the importance of leveraging long-term relationships and the potential benefits that we might enjoy there. And indeed, just last week, we saw a $14 billion, I think it was, or potential up to $14 billion of an Emirati set of agreements of investments in the UK. First, as Sarah also sort of mentioned, one of the key areas that could be focused on or was potential for focus was looking at the health sort of sector. And that was indeed where we've seen some of the uh, investment go to. And so that sort of almost has come around. Life is coming at us pretty fast these days, but that aspect holds up very nicely, I think. When it comes to India, again, there's this focus on health and the vaccine kind of technology and the vaccine um, procurement, uh, production. Again, that's again, if we're nimble and quick, perhaps that can be leveraged going forwards. The Indian report also highlighted a significant gap in terms of the British engagement when it comes to defence, um, a long-term lacuna in many ways, uh, which is conspicuous by its, its size, I suspect. When it comes to Japan and this comprehensive and progressive agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, it just trips off the tongue, um, that the UK is sort of looking to engage in now. So this is, as we know, the third largest trading bloc in the world, uh, half a billion people. Of course, it's not about some sort of replacement for the EU, needless to say. But again, I guess it's not about being nimble, maybe, but engaging with that. The report made the interesting point, it never occurred to me, that given that this is a Japanese project, the British kind of engagement there might be really quite perceived as helping a Japanese initiative, what is for the Japanese a very important initiative as that, and a signal of kind of British kind of intent in that sense. The Mexican report brought up the issue that, you know, things we need to keep abreast of in many ways. So with Mexico um, in the process of reorganizing its FTA with the EU, we need to be aware of not just with Mexico, of course, but more generally, we need to keep be aware of what our European friends are doing and making sure that we don't lose kind of track in that sense, that there's not an obvious delta between the two where we would be, Britain would be at an advantage. And lastly, the, you know, this idea of a litmus test kind of came up um, on one or two occasions. So my, my colleague uh, Manos wrote the Central Asian chapter and he mentioned that, you know, it's an area that has not seen very much British engagement. There's been a fair amount of engagement in Kazakhstan, he was arguing, but not really Central Asia overall. And his point, and, and, and I do agree with it, is, well, here we are. If we are indeed global Britain, we need to be looking towards these new, new opportunities, as it were, these new areas. And maybe that's somewhere where we could focus. Um, I would add that we've actually appointed a, a new trade commissioner quite recently uh, to, to Central Asia and Eastern Europe, and whether they have any resources. But um, that's a positive sign. And those are just some quick thoughts. I'd be delighted to um, have a chat later and, and we'll see where we go. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. My, uh,
computer is dying. <laughs> so, Jacine, I'm going to pass over to you and I'm going to try and fix it. Yeah, that sounds good. Thank you very much. Um, after we now had quite a comprehensive um, overview already um, of the report and what are basically the main takeaways, I will maybe dive into the main takeaways for, however, a major European country and try to give a bit um, the European perspective. So um, first of all, what was very remarkable when you saw that um, concept of global Britain and the integrated review is actually that it opens many doors for cooperation um, with France, particularly as France is the country, which is, of course, after the US, um, mentioned um, very often in the report. Um, and that is already very clear that um, the UK and France will maintain their special relationship, which is often a very pragmatic relationship um, based on shared interests and also a set of shared values, um, also under global Britain. So that was actually good news for Paris. And um, when we are only looking purely at this report, I will come um, to more recent policy issues um, in a few moments, then we actually see that many doors are also op are opening up for new formats of cooperation. So um, first of all, what we basically see is that there is an important convergence of interests between France and um, the UK which is generally something which is perceived as very positive in Paris, um, be it, for example, the Indo-Pacific, but also hybrid threats. So um, the general direction of this report uh, rhymes pretty well with um, what policymakers prioritize in Paris. But what is actually the most interesting thing um, from a French perspective is that global Britain is actually pretty French. So when we are looking at um, this concept of global Britain, we see this idea of globally promoting values. We see that idea of being present, although the UK is, I think we can all agree on that, a middle power in the international system. Um, and basically the UK and France share many characteristics, be it the GDP, be it uh, population size, be it voting power in the United Nations. And um, now that the UK also has um, developed this narrative of being more present, um, it looks pretty much like France because France in general has um, this, yeah, this vision and this approach of being generally very involved abroad, um, much more interventionist than the UK. But this idea of taking responsibility abroad and taking more responsibility abroad that is clearly formulated in the um, concept of global Britain rhymes pretty well with um, the French ambition. And also um, when we're looking a bit into formats, the fact that the UK is more and more or is very willing also to cooperate within ad hoc coalitions um, as we see it, for instance, already in the Sahel um, with the task force Takuba or as we see it in the European Intervention Initiative, where the UK is also a member, shows basically that um, these formats, which were launched by Paris um, and could therefore also be quite well negotiated with the UK, open a window of opportunity for having global Britain plus what might become global Europe. So I think an important takeaway overall from this report is that global Britain does not mean um, the UK alone, even though this report 
is not very pro-European. I mean, everything else would have surprised us in that context. But um, there are open doors for cooperation with France and for cooperation also with um, European partners, albeit not in the classical EU framework. So you don't you don't think those the, the French door in particular has just been slammed rather noisily shut then? That's the exactly the point I wanted to come to now, because um, I mean, what all looks quite rosy and quite nice in what I'm saying here uh, looks a bit, or what the paper says particularly, um, looks a bit different in um, the news that we've had from uh, the last days, you know, the AUKUS deal between Australia, the US and the UK, although France had already had a submarine deal with Australia. Um, this kind of um, political choice, let's put it like that, is um, for France, the French foreign minister, um, foreign minister called it a step in the back. And um, that is definitely the case because um, the relationship between the UK and France is, has generally been very pragmatic, driven by um, joint um, yeah, shared interests. And now the fact that the UK, alongside with the US, prioritizes its own interests and it is not clear in how far France was consulted. And in any case, it's clear that France is for the moment excluded from the office. Um, that does not only um, significantly impact the trust between France and the UK, but definitely also the appetite for cooperation um, yeah. with this partner yeah. and also or this is even more um, frustrating in the eyes or if from a French perspective that the Indo-Pacific is definitely the next theater or the big theater in the years to come for international affairs where the UK and France could have cooperated also particularly in terms of maritime security but um, after what happened with AUKUS there might be a lot of confidence building um, and a lot of uh, diplomatic initiatives necessary um, to get back to a point where cooperation can actually be. Effective. Okay, Dave, um, David, to, actually, before I turn to you, David, let me say, A, apologies for all those echoes and weirdness. I've swapped computer because my other computer seemed to be going mad. So I hope that the sound and the video is all right now. And do stick your questions on Slido and I hope we can reserve, we can resume service as normal. But David, you're in government an awful long time and you've seen an awful lot while in government but have you ever seen anything like the events of the last week i'm, I'm trying to, to think, think of um, a comparable example i suppose you i mean some of um, president trump's comments about nato um caused uh, uh, considerable furor um in terms of you know, fierce rows public rows within the Western Alliance. I mean, take out uh, Trump, and it's it's quite hard to think of anything quite like this in recent years. But I think we've got to remember that both Emmanuel Macron and Scott Morrison have got elections coming up next year, when they both face um, pretty tough battles to try and get re-elected. So some of this is electoral, but I I think it's it, my view on this is that since the Australians clearly took a decision that they no longer believe that the French contract would deliver what they needed for their security needs. Um, it, it's quite hard to see the British government being phoned up by the Australians saying, well, oh, no, no, please go away, we can't help you, you must stick with 
Paris, and it's certainly not how a French minister would have reacted if he'd got a call uh, of that nature. Um, but I think the handling probably by Washington does seem to have been clumsy, um, and you know, that clearly work needs to take place to try to put things together, because you look at underlying common interests, and there's no way that you will get an effective uh, pillar, European pillar of the Atlantic Alliance, uh, without both the UK and France being centrally involved in some way, because we're the only two European countries that have both got the significant uh, military, intelligence and diplomatic assets to make it work, but combine that with the, the political will to actually use those, and, and in a way that Germany, for obvious historical reasons, is, is deeply reluctant to do, even now. Um, so we have to find you know, ways, uh, London, Paris, of, of working more effectively together. And if you know, the European allies are to have any greater flexibility to act without the Americans, because there'll be occasions, Africa perhaps, where the Americans don't want to act in the future, but where Britain and France do, then uh, we have to have um, systems in place to enable us to do that. So we have to rebuild on this, but um, it's clearly it's going through, through, through a bumpy a bumpy patch at the moment. Is there not a danger? I mean, you spoke about the European pillar of NATO, and this is for you as well, Gisine, I suppose, that what has just happened reignites traditional French distrust of NATO. I mean, you've heard some of the early rhetoric, which is very striking. I mean, there were moments when it felt a bit like we were in 1966 all over again. But is there a danger that actually this will be grist to the mill for those in Paris who actually think this isn't about a European pillar of NATO. This is about Europeans doing things separately to NATO. Do you think that? Go ahead, David. Uh, there'll, be, there'll be some of that, um, certainly. And those who, who believe that will, will uh, try to exploit this difference. Um, I don't myself believe that's what President Macron is after. I mean, my understanding of President Macron, having heard him speak on this, having having read uh, his thoughts, is is that he, he wants you know, there to be a revive reform NATO, but he, he wants that complemented by a by describe a European capability to act and the systems mechanisms uh in international agreements in place for that to to happen. Um so that not everything has to be 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 done on the say so of, of Washington. Um, and I think that I, I think that there is a you know, sufficient compound between that approach and that of uh, any UK government to, to to make it possible for us to find a new way, a new way forward. But yeah, look at look at the rest of Europe. The very last thing that the Baltic states or Poland or Romania um, or other EU members want is to see any weakening of NATO or, or duplication of NATO's functions by the European Union. So I don't think there is an alternative to NATO is the, the fundamentals of, of, of our collective security. But then there is scope, I think, for a sensible discussion about how the European uh, democracies can work more effectively together, because I think Biden is very clear that he's going to focus on what he sees as absolutely core US national interests, predominantly in the Indo-Pacific, but clearly the relationship with Russia. I think Israel, um, Israel-Iran is going to be important for him still. But there'll be things happening, I suspect, in the Western Balkans, in Africa, in, East, in Eastern Europe, that will matter a lot to European countries, but which 
the U.S. will see as rather peripheral. And as Obama said to Cameron and Sarkozy over Libya, look, I'll give you support, but you guys have got to own this. You've got to take the political leadership. Jazine, would you agree with that? Um, I would go a bit further. So in general, I would agree, like, you won't have the, or at least on the government level, you won't have the debate of France have, uh, leaving NATO. So that is probably the good news uh, about that, because, um, I mean, France in general has a tradition or a strategic culture, rather, um, that focuses much more on integrating European security through the EU and not through NATO. And in that context, you have to be aware that uh, basically Macron is as transatlantic as it gets in France. So only um, if he like is critical or says things of like a brain dead alliance as he did in 2018, that has to be seen in the context of the larger debate. And whenever you're looking at what Macron says on European security and also what um, basically the French approach is on strengthening European security, the general idea is that this European pillar or this EU pillar in the end has to be highly compatible with NATO and have and has to serve NATO. And um, whenever it is coming to that debate on strategic autonomy, um, and that is particularly something that the Americans really need to understand, this is not about Europe becoming a military superpower or Europe doing military or security and defense solo riding. That is about becoming a credible partner because um, the, the EU or France wants the EU to step up um, its capabilities to make a real contribution to European security through NATO. And um, I guess that this is basically where... Um, where France or in general the the EU and the UK can fight together. So in my opinion, NATO and the future can serve as a very important coordinating forum between the US, the UK and the EU member states or like integrated European Union. David? Yeah, just um, to jump in and just ask questions of all of, of you three, to be honest, on this point. Without wishing to get too academic, there's the issue of structure versus agency. You know, what matters more, the embedded structures in which we work or individuals and the like. And so I'm interested in Macron's kind of calculus here, because his reaction seems to have been, to me, and not a, not a French foreign policy expert at all, apoplectic. And I interpret it as quite a domestic focused reaction. So I'm not sure if that is correct. But again, it's interesting you said, Jesse, of course, that he is such an Atlanticist, but that, you know, he has just run headlong into that kind of an issue at the moment. And so, as I say, I'm interested in exactly as you say and as you outline the structure of kind of France's sort of Atlanticist orientation um, of the European kind of military capability more generally is rooted in like I say, structures which really need that kind of West um, US engagement and working with us Brits again to a degree. So the structure, yes, is, is like kind of set. But we've had such an interesting push from the individual. And this is like the Trumpian question of can an individual really change a foreign policy when you have the blob, as it were? That was the Trumpian kind of a question. But I'm interested in perhaps um, your thoughts on that kind of an issue about, yeah, is it a domestically orientated issue? Is it a bit more hot air than I am uh, perceiving, perhaps? And like I say, the structure versus agency thing, perhaps. If you don't mind me hijacking this briefly, excuse me. No, I think, but I think in that context, David's point about looming elections is a very, very valid one. That actually, you know, 
in both Australia and France, you have uh, elections on the horizon, and that has been known to alter the behaviour of political leaders. Uh, another question on structure, actually, from Roger Boys, and let me just say to the audience, uh, do please vote for the questions you want me to put to the panel, because it just makes my life a lot easier. So if only for that reason. But there's an interesting question for Roger Boys, which is, is the Foreign Office fit for global Britain? That is to say, you know, you've got all these great ambitions, but at the same time, you've got this department, which is still trying to digest the merger of DFID. I don't know if any of you want to take this on, but is, is, the, is the Foreign Office fit for purpose with such an ambitious sort of global Britain agenda ahead of it? Uh, let me give you my unvarnished view on this, which is, I think, the Foreign Office, my personal experience, contains some of the brightest, most formidable public servants that we've got in this country. But I think the Foreign Office is still a pretty demoralised department. I think there's, there's no getting away from the fact that you know, the, um, the, the, the outcome of the EU referendum uh, and then the subsequent um, to removal of responsibility for a huge amount of European policy and also to some of the trade policy that the FCO had influenced through UK trade industry previously um, to different departments um, did, I think, hit uh, Charles, uh, King Charles Street pretty hard. And I think there's a real challenge now for Liz Truss as the new Foreign Secretary to re-establish her department as the thought leader in Whitehall as to what global Britain means and actually to, to put together, take the lead in putting together the operational plan to turn global Britain from a slogan into something that really does make a, a difference to this country's interests in the decades to come. I thought it was a very impressive start, actually, uh, uh, with the integrated review. I'm, I'm not to be a fan of the integrated review than a lot of external commentators have been. Um, but the big challenge there is to turn that from a set of aspirations and a description of the UK's strategic interests into a plan to strengthen and advance those interests globally. I think the FCO diplomatic wing needs strengthening. We have far too many embassies around the world where we have just perhaps two UK-based diplomats who are the only people that are able to look at the highly classified information. Um, some of our embassies, and to be made of Central Asia, of Latin America, some of these are very, very tiny posts indeed. They don't have the capacity with so few people to, to upgrade uh, their role in the presence of the UK. Um, we certainly need to finish finish the, the merger of DFID and, and uh, SCO because I think that, we, that does give extra resource, human resource as well as um, financial resource. But I also think we need to see the National Security Council working better than it has been. I mean, the original idea was the NSC should be where ministers, foreign development, defence, trade, the security chiefs, the military chiefs all sit down with the PM chairing and work out what our strategic approach is across uh, a broad international um, problem. Too often, and under successive governments, you know, uh, um, I saw this, the, the National Security Council has 
become the venue for firefighting meetings to, to deal with immediate crises. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and, and it, it's very difficult in our system, and ministers and MPs as well, to find the time for senior ministers to get together and really think through and deliberate over these big strategic issues. But that, it is that absolutely has to happen. We cannot afford any any more of these embarrassing squabbles that we saw between the Foreign Office and the Ministry of Defence over the fallout from Afghanistan uh, just a few weeks ago. I mean, that you know, we need all these departments of external affairs to work together. I mean, David and Jazeen, either on the Foreign Office question itself or on sort of things that were raised by David's remarks. I mean, firstly, comes to mind, is there a country that does strategic thinking on foreign policy well? Uh, but also, do you, do you share the view that the integrated review is a sort of decent first step for putting some flesh on the bones of this idea of global Britain? I mean, I must confess, I thought there was quite a, good, a lot of good analysis in the integrated review, but it struck me as something of a smorgasbord of everything to do with foreign policy we might possibly be interested in rather than attempt to make any real choices. But I don't know what, what your thinking is on, on that, either of you. Yeah, maybe I will just quickly respond um, to that question and skip um, the French uh, specific perspective. In my opinion, there is one country which does um, strategic thinking and foreign policy thinking, at least in a remarkable way. Um, This is China, because China doesn't think in steps of two or three years. China thinks in decades in 20, 30, 40 years. And that, I guess, um, really allows them to set a strategy and also to set goals. Whether the methods domestically and the mechanisms to achieve these goals are what we want to have in democratic states, that is a completely different question. And that is also why I think we should be very careful when we are comparing Western democracies and strategic thinking, strategy making, um, especially in states where we also have like political change to a state like China. So that um, maybe as a background, um, mm. or that maybe um, as something to keep in mind. Um, however, I think that um, the integrated review can be a good starting point for strategic thinking, especially as a middle power, because it, lines out, it lays out where the UK wants to go on the long term. And um, even though, of course, you don't have all these precise information in that, um, I see it as, um, yeah, as a good starting point. Also, when I'm comparing it um, to the French, um, it's, it has more or less the same title of French, um, Revue, um, Revue Integré, um, that also lines out. I think it's important to have kind of a self, self-conceptualization of a state to then depart from that understanding of your own role in foreign policy to adopt concrete steps. So um, from that point, I guess it's good, but of course there still needs to be put flesh on the bones in terms of policy. David, just just a very quick thought. I mean, I I mentioned towards the beginning that there are opportunities for nimbleness, as it were, if we are nimble, but I don't suspect that uh, foreign office or many government ministries have been accused of being nimble on too many occasions. This is the difficulty, you know, um, as David was sort of alluding to, it's this kind of grand institution, of course, that has had very set ways of, of doing business for a very long time, from, from my understanding, at least. And through my engagement there, uh, you, you, I think some of the silos that you come across are quite profound. 
uh, you've got those sort of in-between desks, those, you know, small kind of um, uh, small mini walls, as it were, but they, they, they could be any size because the people on either side are in different departments. You know, this is a, a, a simple point to make, but it's one that a lot of people, a lot of institutions suffer from. And so, yes, perhaps um, there is an opportunity now with a new minister arriving who, from her previous brief, might, I'm sure she does have the feeling of the, the pressure to act quickly with a bit of nimbleness perhaps um, to get these deals done as it was and perhaps you can bring that kind of um, impetus uh, but I don't want to pretend I'm, I haven't worked in the FCO so I don't want to pretend I'm too an expert there but I'm not immensely hopeful that these institutions can change I guess is the point there. Okay, can I be a bit in, interject a, a word of optimism there and I my experience or particularly the our best ambassadors and deputy heads of mission is that they will be nimble. They will take the initiative and often they will spot something going on in the capital to which they're posted that gives the UK an opportunity. But ministers back here have to decide whether they're going to empower their ambassadors to get going and perhaps take some risks occasionally um, or whether everything is going to need to be referred back to go through sometimes not just you know, ministers within the department agreeing to, to something and the hierarchy ticking it off, but then cross-departmental discussions within Whitehall. And you suddenly find an opportunity disappears because someone like France, let alone China, moves in a lot more smartly. You know, France is the Elysee that decides foreign policy. Thank you very much. We don't want the government getting too closely involved. Um, and as um, Jazine said, you know, if you are I mean, in chi- China, um, my experience, China, Russia, Iran, all had very strong sort of strategic gr- grips on their external policies. And of course, they don't have to worry about um, the politics quite so much. You know, Xi Jinping does not lie awake at night fretting about prospects for the Shanghai West by-election that's coming up. You know, it, it, it's um, uh, so... I think democracies just have to accept that um, we have those greatest constraints for, on, on our uh, long terms, actually, for good reason. But but that's why it's it's important that we have those institutional structures, like a National Security Council, that actually force the system to look right across the board, strategically at an issue, and trying not to get obsessed by the the week in week out firefighting and crisis management. Is it also an issue for democracies that in a, that basically elections aren't won or lost on foreign policy? And in a sense, insofar these days as foreign policy is an electoral issue, it's it's retrenchment and pulling back from the world that seems to be popular amongst democratic states rather than engagement. So in that sense, isn't it quite hard to imagine foreign policy ever becoming a real priority with this government? I mean, David, you spoke about the need for greater investment in the foreign office. I've I'm willing to bet that when it comes to the CSR this autumn, spending money on diplomacy is not one of the priorities laid out by this government because there's simply so many other uh, demands on on the government's cash. But do, do we get a sense that foreign policy is a priority for this government or not? I, th- I think that it's, um, it's something that every prime minister does regard as important because the, the head of government is so involved with foreign policy these days. And I think that, you know, if you were to go out and sort of question voters, you know, they, they, they would want to feel that their country's standing in the world is good, is high. 
but that does not, you're right, that does not translate into uh, people spending much time thinking about international uh, affairs. They notice when something's gone wrong. Um, you know, so you know, we've had the how, how the Afghan withdrawal was handled recently that did, did cut through to the public. Um, horrors like the Rwandan genocide, um, horrors like um, some of the atrocities in the Balkans in the 1990s did get through to the general public. But most of the time, um, you're right, very, very, very little. The, the other thing that I think is unique to the UK system, well, not, not unique, but it, it, it is, is characteristic of us, not of every democracy, is that our ministers also sit in the legislature. And it's been, a, it's a cause of permanent frustration, Labour, Tory, coalition government to um, officials, that they can't get ministers to give enough face time to foreigners, um, because uh, those ministers are having to turn up and vote, they're having to go to question time. I mean, Douglas Hurd said to me years ago, and I worked for him, and he was foreign secretary, he said, it's extraordinary, I, I, I'm foreign secretary, I fly around the world, I talk to Bush, this is Bush the first, to, to Gorbachev, and I come back and spend Saturday afternoon sitting in a drafty church hall in Oxfordshire while people come and shout at me about the poll tax, and he said, I tell my French and German opposite numbers this, and they look at me with a mixture of, um, sort of, of, of undisguised horror um, sort of on, 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 on their, and disbelief on their faces. And, and um, you know, that is something about our system that I think has always meant that sometimes our leaders just not had the time in the diary or not made the time in the diary to follow up some of those international opportunities that, that we ought to have done. David or Gisine, do you want to come in on this, on the sort of the priority accorded to foreign policy? Um, I would maybe jump in with a comparative um, perspective and thereby also um, come back to one of the questions um, David uh, raised before. So um, I guess that in general, like that elections are not won with foreign policy or with mm -hmm. um, questions of foreign policy is also something that is currently quite obvious in the German federal elections, because uh, even after three TV debates, there has not been a single word on, okay, maybe I'm exaggerating, but maybe there have been one or two words, but um, the topics of Europe or foreign policy have not even been discussed. And that basically, I think, especially in times of COVID shows that um, electoral campaigns are focusing much more on domestic issues today um, than on foreign policy. And I guess that is also something, uh, to come back to David's question, um, that we see in France. So um, even though it was, um, or in general, maybe it is important for um, heads of state and government not to be humiliated internationally. And that was definitely the case here for France with the AUKUS deal. And that is also why it was um, discussed so intensively domestically. But I'd say in general, if you manage to avoid uh, humiliation, on the international scene, then foreign policy is not that much an issue in um, election campaigns. David, do you want to? Yeah, just a, uh, just a quick thought there. I mean, uh, to pick up on David's point earlier, um, I agreed in terms of, you know, the, in my sort of experience in the Gulf, our diplomatic teams there, they've got a super sense of some of the opportunities there and they're really incentivized to hoover them in. You know, it's good for their careers as much as anything, as much as they want to do well for the country, obviously, all, all that kind of a thing. But of course, when they send it back home, exactly to your point, that's when it gets a bit meshed up, I suspect. Uh, 
And of course, in this wider pandemic, not post-pandemic, but this post-Brexit or during Brexit, whatever the phrase is, you know, economically, um, it's testing, to say the least, across the board. And we need to worry about the hollowing out is putting it too far, of course. But it's the, the analogies is there with sort of the aircraft carrier and the F-35, these immensely expensive, impressive uh, looking, well, fundamentally impressive pieces of kit. But because so much money is being spent on them, on the slightly more boring things, more logistical issues at the bases that need to be revamped in order to accept all of these sorts of issues on the, on the day to day almost. Um, I think that that is where the spending cuts we've seen have been have been biting so much. And as I mentioned, it is good that we, we have what's the phrase, a new trade commissioner for Central Asia, but it's also for Central Asia and Eastern Europe, which I think gives you a sense that, he, I mean, that, that individual will be quite busy, um, to put it sort of mildly, I guess. And so whether it's, it's like the integrated review, I guess, it's whether it's how much the writing will translate beyond the tokenism of writing this consistent, considered report um, into having a, a meaningful kind of impact on the ground. And that's where the spending on less glamorous things is really difficult and is facing the pinch, I think. We're getting an awful lot of questions on sort of working with the European Union and with European partners. So let me just sort of try and put a, a series of these questions to you. I mean, I suppose first the macro question is, is, is global Britain a way of reorientating the UK away from Europe and finding other partners and other sort of zones of influence? Or is global Britain, does global Britain have to be predicated on strong and collaborative links with European states for it to have any substance and meaning? So I can comment on that uh, unless um, the two of you want to go first. No, no, go ahead, Josie. Okay, so I think that um, overall, um, Global Britain is, I would say, um, an attempt to diversify um, the UK's um, external relations. I mean, they are already Um, extensive. The UK has one of the most extensive, or the most extensive, uh, um, or after the withdrawal from the EU, a few, a few kind of natural partners. Um, I don't want to say disappear, but a few natural partners um, might not see cooperate or might not seek um, cooperation um, as a natural reflex, and that is something. Um, the Europeans um, or U the UK might need to need to work on because that kind of shifts also their priorities, right? So um, I guess on the other hand, um, does this mean other zones of influence? Yes, but I wouldn't say that this is because of the withdrawal from the EU. I'd say like the idea of having more influence in the Indo-Pacific, for instance, is rather linked to the recent developments in international security that we see there than um, to the fact that the UK is withdrawing um, from the EU. But on the other hand, not being an EU member anymore means that uh, the UK now needs to completely redefine um, its role and also um, its um, bilateral relations. Um, for instance, I mean, Global Britain is not only on security, it's also on trade. Mm -hmm. And trade has been institutionalized through the EU. So um, the UK now needs to recreate 
um, these structures. Um, however, one point I want to make in this um, regard as well is that um, Global Britain is, even though the report does not explicitly state that there is an appetite for cooperation with the EU through all channels, um, I think it really opens the door to uh, having flexible cooperation. And also, on the other hand, it is clear that Global Britain will need Global Europe, um, be it in the European neighborhood um, for addressing challenges like state instability or terrorism, but also um, where interests of the UK and the Europeans are maybe more similar than the interests of the UK and the US. So um, that is definitely something um, policymakers here in London need to be aware of. Thank you. David or David? I mean, I, I, I think that um, one of the striking things about the report was that I found myself asking um, how much of this was new um, and and. and flown from the decision to leave the European Union, because it struck me that uh, most of what the report identified as, 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 as opportunities for the UK in these various bilateral relationships are things that we could arguably should have been doing in any case, you know, whether we're still inside the EU or, or had left it, and, and, and uh, that in both circumstances it would, that action would have been possible. I, my own very strong view is that global Britain... Uh, and uh, European Britain are, are complementary. They're not not contradictory. The, the, the idea you should have a Europe-shaped hole in your global strategy seems to me to be perverse in the extreme. Uh, uh, and if I look at the challenges around um, our continent at the moment, um, you have um, Putin um, with military intervention in both Ukraine and Georgia, and uh, significant political uh, pressure and other, other forms of pressure, hybrid warfare in, in, in some cases in, in other countries in Eastern Europe as well. You have the Western Balkans, um, where not only is uh, Russia also at work, but, but also where there's a risk that weak governance leads to a safe space for organised crime, which can then threaten our interests and those of our other European neighbours. And in Africa, you have not only humanitarian crises, but a needs, but you have uh, a long-term challenge uh, of migration because of mass movement of people. It's going to go on for a couple of generations. You know, this is, this is not going to be something that will be solved by this or, or the next government or probably the one after. Um, and Half the world's teenagers will live in Africa by the middle of this century. Um, uh, on some forecasts, Nigeria will have more people than the United States by the middle of this century. Um, you know, not, there will not be enough jobs for people with ambition um, and energy. They will try to move in, in their shoes, completely understand why they'd be doing it. Um, but they are also being exploited by organised crime that's every bit as professional as legitimate business that trades in people, trades in drugs. Um, is, you've also got jihadism uh, challenging the established order right across the swathe of um, West uh, Central Africa through 
down to Kenya, Mozambique, uh, Tanzania. I mean, these are huge challenges which the UK, Germany, France, Italy, none of us can deal with on our own, but where if you had the ability for European countries, whether they're in or out of the EU, to work more effectively together and plan together, um, then we stand a chance, I think, of addressing those challenges more effectively than if we, if we just talk about it and, and try to do little bits and pieces on our own. I have to say, on, on, on the one hand, that was rather quaintly rational of you, David, to sort of spell out the challenges and what we need to do to address them. But on the other hand, there is politics, isn't there? Now, isn't it just the case that in the, I mean, so there's two bits to this question, I suppose. In the United Kingdom, the politics of Brexit means the government might see it as in its interest not to be seen to be working too closely with the Europeans, hence the decision to drop the security and foreign policy elements contained in the original political declaration to have no agreement with the EU over those issues. Isn't it just better politics to work with, might be the Australians and the Americans, but whoever it might be, rather than to be seen to be working with the Europeans? And the second part of that question is, for some European states, isn't the legacy of Brexit one of we probably can't trust the United Kingdom to work with them. And in particular, in the case of France, given the forthcoming election, isn't there a real incentive to see EU defence cooperation as aimed against the United Kingdom in much the way that it was once aimed against the United States? That's to say, the Anglo-Saxon allies are not trustworthy. See what they've just done to us. Uh, Politics dictates the fact that we need to be seen to be doing these sorts of things ourselves and turning our back on bilateral cooperation with the UK. I mean, I have a, a far less optimistic view than David, quite clearly. But isn't there some truth that politics is, will drive us apart? Uh, I, I, I think those pressures are there. Those, those are real. The mistrust is real. Um, the the bruises are, of the last five years are real. We, we've had an earthquake with Brexit, and we're now living through the period of aftershocks. Mm. And it will take some time to work out what a new um, sort of sensible partnership should be between the UK and uh, its fellow democracies in, in Europe. But I do, I believe that common interests uh, will win through in the end. And if you look at what the Johnson government has actually done uh, since it came to office, and the Sahel is a good case in point, um, Boris Johnson decided to mm-hmm. ramp up the UK's military contribution to that French-led effort in the Sahel, beyond what um, Theresa May had already uh, agreed to do and had had deployed. Um, if you look at the position the current Prime Minister has taken on the Iran nuclear programme, on Israel-Palestine, on climate, he's stuck very much to what would be termed a mainstream European position. He didn't go herring off when Donald Trump was uh, urging him to move in a different policy direction entirely. So uh, I, I, I'm i not pretending the the, the difficulties, uh, and they're serious ones, do, do not exist. But I, th- I think that um, it, it is possible to find a way through this. And our interests, the interests of, of our people, demand that we should find a way to do so. Sorry, David, I'd rather sort of cut in before I let you go, if you've got... Just a, a quick thought on that. I mean, this links, of course, back to this issue of the role of foreign policy in local politics or politics in the UK, obviously. And again, I think it global Britain does have, have a, a, a relatively minor um, role in sort of in, in the domestic politics, more so than many other political sort of ideas and movements, I suspect. 
But I don't think that that role is much more than the title, uh, the sentiment, the ethos of global Britain, as which carries with it this idea of a greater separation from Europe. Uh, I suspect that would be, you know, that is as much as probably cuts through, I, I would sort of presume. And that might be, quote unquote, enough for those sorts of voters who are interested in that, as opposed to the, the, the kind of the, the underground, as it were, or under the obvious view, kind of pragmatic reality of geography being powerful. Um, we are located where we are, and I, enduringly so. And so I think that the politicians will probably be able to have enough of these tokens, as it were, these visible tokens of a post-Brexit change, the passport, imperial and metric, global Britain. I think those highlight headlines might be enough for a status quo ante comparatively to just sort of continue to pedal along, driven by the obvious realities of our trade uh, and our location. Um, and just another briefly, the, the Germany report that we have, uh, article that we have in our report, mentions this one of those points quite nicely about the concern within Germany that what are the Brits going to do now? Are they going to try to drive more of a wedge between EU states and try to sort of pull them apart in some way, shape or form? And I'm sure Gesine can speak more um, eloquently to me uh, than me on that point. But that's uh, something else that sort of leaps to mind me. And Gisele, on the, on the French in particular, how long, I mean, this is a really unfair question, I suppose. Do you think the French will be able to sort of forgive and forget and start working closely with the UK again on security matters? And if so, how long might it take them? It might be till after the, certainly after the election, I would have thought. Well, I don't want to give a time horizon here. To you. <laughs> no, fair enough. Um, forgive? Maybe. Forget? No. So um, I'm sure that um, this incident will definitely mark um, at least a generation of French diplomats and policymakers and um, might indeed um, influence um, the trust among these two countries. Um, I mean, the trust um, in civil society in general um, could be better among um, France and the UK. Um, we've seen that, for instance, in the transatlantic trends survey of um, the German Marshall Fund of the United States, where only 47% of the French people say that they regard the UK as a reliable ally or as a reliable mm. partner for their country. And that, um, however, shows that they, these cracks are existing. And um, after what is happening happening now or what has happened with AUKUS, um, this will for sure not improve. Um, I don't think, like in the beginning, you were talking about um, the politics of Brexit. I don't think um, that Brexit will be a narrative that France will use um, to have, have or to have a stronger impetus on European defense cooperation. But they might indeed use AUKUS to show that um, it might be useful to um, draw strong or to rely more on European allies um, than on what is now um, or what we could actually describe as a kind of Atlanticist club. Um, mm. Because we see that, um, or let's maybe say Ang an Anglo Saxon club, um, which I think the UK wants to rely on increasingly, it's at least um, when it comes to like public initiatives, 
uh, things that you can communicate in a good way because then um, we are back at the politics of Brexit. It's much easier um, for an Atlantis mm. country like the UK to say that there will be a, a deal or any kind of cooperation agreement with uh, the US and Australia than with the, U with the EU. And in this regard, personally, I think that, um, that the UK with its participation through, through AUKUS, and I'm sorry that I have to be so blunt here, uh, shot itself in the foot because um, France would have been the country um, where bilateral, uh, with um, which bilateral cooperation could have opened the door to flexible formats of European defense cooperation or also through maybe cooperation even with EU defense and with upsetting France in that manner I think um, that will definitely complicate um, the things now here. So I suppose going back to points that, that David touched on earlier, the frustration for France is that, that many of the European states that do take security seriously are very wedded to NATO as a result. And many of the European states that talk the best game about European defence are simply unwilling to commit either troops or cash to security in the way that the French would like. So it might be that you know there are frustrations on both sides facing the French. I've got a, a typically forthright question here. I don't know if anyone wants to take it from Tim Garton Ash. I'll just read it out uh, so I don't paraphrase him. Who in the world is really interested in global Britain? Isn't it striking how both in Europe and the US, people don't talk about the UK as much as they did before? So really, I will jump in here because I'm reading like French and German media quite regularly. Um, I mean, I definitely don't have uh, the comparison, let's say, to the 80s because I'm a 90s kid. So um, I don't know like uh, how exactly he defines before. But personally, I would say, be it during the Brexit campaign or also with Global Britain, I would say that it definitely sparks interest among the key European allies and um, that the European or the continental European public is quite well informed about what is happening in the UK. And that is also why I would say that people cared, or I, of course, I don't know whether the individual citizen cared, but in any case, the policy community um, had a, really, I think, a huge interest in what is happening with this um, Global Britain concept, also because it was announced, um, I think, by uh, Theresa May in 2017, and um, we had to wait four years for that. So um, time was up for that in one regard, but I think it was largely discussed, and there were important reflections on that, both in terms of uh, grand strategy for middle powers of European states in general, as well as um, for the implications um, for bilateral relations. So I wouldn't agree with um, the fact that people don't care about global Britain. David or David, do you think people are discounting this? I, I, I think that um, Tim, um, Tim hits an important point, which I think there is a tendency in this country uh, to um, sort of overstate the amount of clout that we, we have in the world these days. Um, but I, I think that it would be wrong to sort of assume from that that you know, the UK is a state, a power that doesn't count. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, the United States, China, uh, you know, are the 
dominant powers. But we, you know, we are, you know, I would say pretty, pretty you know, around the t- top of the, the second tier rank, you know, certainly along with a country like France uh, amongst the, the Western allies. And we still are important players, even after leaving the EU, which I, you know, I regret, but it's happened. Um, in, in a large number of international institutions and networks, our ambassador at the United Nations every week is working with other countries to try to put together Security Council measures and resolutions uh, to address a particular issue. So I don't think we should understate uh, our importance, but I, I think it's right to be clear eyed. About it, you know, we're not in the position that we we were in those famous snapshots of um, the big three, you know, Churchill, Stalin, Roosevelt meeting in the aftermath of World War Two. David, just yeah, just just very briefly. I mean, the fact that Britain focuses far more on a British policy than the rest of the states in the world doesn't strike me as that revelatory. To be honest, it's like, well, of course, it's a British policy. What, what, what do you expect? I mean. I checked this morning, I, th- I think Britain's the fifth largest economy in the world. So, you know, it's it's not about interest in this new quirk of British foreign policy, but, you know, all states in the world are in some way, shape or form, vaguely interested to varying degrees in what Britain is up to, if only, only of course, for their own sort of self-interest. So absolutely right. We, we're not one of those sort of big three anymore or that sort of an idea. And I do understand that the, 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 perhaps at least the origin of that sentiment, that critique that there's extra flowery language in the integrated review or in some of the documentation as a sop to quasi sentimental British ideas uh, long past of Britain's role in the world. That strikes me as an absolutely fair critique. But again, that's what, what do you expect <laughs> in these political documents um, are political documents. Um, specifically, the report mentions that, you know, the global Britain kind of rhetoric hasn't cut through in the US much at all. In Brazil, there's a bit of disappointment from the pullback from Europe, um, apparently. Mexico not cut through at all. Um, Japan, an interest in it in terms of the how that will play into the, the growing kind of Japanese-British role going forwards. And so, yeah, what can I say? It's kind of up and down but to, to, to David's point earlier you know I guess it depends um oh, I've just lost what I was going to say but David made a good point earlier um so I'll leave it there I won't repeat we'll it that David made a good point okay uh for those for those asking questions about the German election I'm afraid I'm going to ignore you because we've got an event on the implications of the German election this Thursday and I'm very happy to put that question to the panelists then uh, interesting point by Angus Lapsley, uh, who points, who reminds us that 2003 was quite bad in terms of relations with some of our key European partners, but we bounced back. So you should never say never. And just a quick question from from John Pete, which is, do, do any of you envisage that the UK will sign a formal security cooperation deal with the European Union in the foreseeable future? Is that is that ship sailed? Yeah, I'm not going to put a date on it. I think it will happen um, if we're within the next ten years. But it may, you know, it may be, you know, more than five. Fully agree on this point. So I guess um, coming back to this point, politics of Brexit. 
um, now like push, uh, leaving the EU and officially really being out from the beginning of this year. And then um, on the other hand, signing a security and defense partnership right after um, issuing the global bridging concept, that would be completely incoherent. And um, I guess if the British government did that, that would be very difficult to serve our domestic um, public. So they would probably not do it. But on the other hand, um, David, you said it quite, or you put it quite nicely, um, common interest will win. Um, and that's um, why I also think that maybe not under the von der Leyen Commission, but um, probably un at least under the next EU Commission, um, or, or very, from a very pragmatic point of view, there needs to be um, an EU-UK defense partnership or a security partnership in whichever form. But I think that um, these relations, whether we are thinking about missions or capability um, building on the longer term or rather on the medium term, need kind of a structural approach and structural framework and um, kind of a deal or an agreement might help finding this structural framework. Perhaps just um, uh, sort of an analogy. I mean, I mean, I agree with sort of the, the logic and very clearly expressed that post five-year timetable sounds sensible. But equally, if, if you'll forgive a divergence to the Gulf monarchies, which is what I do for, for a living, just very briefly. So you have six Gulf monarchies that are desperately concerned about the threat across the water from Iran, from this state that is larger than them. There is this cultural animosity, this um, centuries of it, and the very real sort of asymmetric concerns. Um, there's been wars between different sides with Iran and Iraq and so on and so on. So you have this quintessential threat over there. And on the monarchies, of course, they are united by far more than they are divided in various, various ways. Yet the Gulf monarchies are singularly poor at coming together in any kind of a meaningful cooperation. The Gulf Cooperation Council is moribund in many ways. They just don't come together against when they are the perfect grouping of states united against this quintessential other. And that's the, the form of the GCC in 81, but hasn't made much progress um, essentially in defense circles. My point being that the logic, I think, is impeccable that, yes, there's a five-year timetable, but the vagaries of the kind of, of the local politics are, can scupper sort of ordinary logic. And the last point about the, one of the reasons I always argue why the Gulf have never come together is because they've got faith in Uncle Sam, that Uncle Sam will protect them. And the analogy there with Europe isn't to do with NATO. So maybe it really pivots on what's going to transpire with NATO in the next five years um, and how secure they feel there and whether that forces them into making difficult decisions about coming together on issues where they don't really want to. Excellent. I mean, I'm just going to drag us away from you. I don't realise, and it's my fault, we've been very, very Eurocentric, but one of the really interesting parts of the report were the sections dealing with South Africa and Nigeria, both of which I think in different ways underline the fact that for all this notion of global Britain, precious little or far too little attention is being paid uh, to sub-Saharan Africa when it comes to British foreign policy. So I suppose two questions, A, is this true? And B, do we think it will last or it should last? Or do you think the British government will recalibrate a bit and pay a bit more attention to an area which, as David intimated earlier, is going to be, well, already is, but it's going to be still more so of crucial importance in the years to come? 
I know none of you are Africa specialists, so maybe this is an unfair question to pose you, but if any of you have any thoughts. Well, I mean, this, this, this ought to be one of the, the, the obvious fruits of the merger between the Foreign Office and DFID, because DFID had, uh, in many countries in Africa, a much larger footprint financially and in terms of people than the, the diplomatic embassy did. Um, and so you've got the knowledge base and the, the, the human and, and financial resource available. Um, I, and Africa, I think the big, the big African countries, um, the South Africa, Nigeria, Ethiopia, where there are obvious big economic opportunities, um, I think will, uh, become more and more important. Um, and I think there'll be other countries, um, Kenya, where there's a long-standing security relationship, where, where, where I can see the effort being made. But it seems to me Africa is the prime example of a place where if we do not both uh, give it a significantly higher priority ourselves and work with other European countries to resolve the challenges that are facing Africa and us in Africa, um, then those African problems are going to come and hit us. And then we will be responding um, after the event. And many European countries have different expertise, partly from colonial history, partly from more recent uh, uh, relationships with different African countries, which reinforces, again, that there's an obvious um, synergy, a complementarity between the efforts that the United Kingdom, France, and Italy, Portugal and others uh, might make in, in, in Africa. Particularly if they can coordinate it properly. Yes, precisely. Okay. David? Yeah, just, just briefly indeed. Um, so the, the, the South African uh, section of the report is, is quite sober in reading, um, effectively. Uh, it doesn't offer a particularly positive kind of a take. And one of the conclusions is that in this signing of free trade agreements, for example, South Africa is not going to choose to give the UK the extra bits and pieces in case that might sort of set off kill to their negotiations with the EU, which makes perfect sense. Therefore, it continues, maybe Britain's approach will have to be following that kind of the values-based approach to focus on good governance and those things, issues which are sorely kind of um, that the state is struggling with at the moment. Otherwise, the Nigeria kind of section is far more positive. It describes ultimately its concluding line is something to do with you know, um, Nigerian, Britain, British relations are at, at a something approaching a peak or something like that. I know that's reflected in, as I mentioned, uh, there's a couple of, there's an inquiry and what is it? Um, yeah, and I, a UK Nigeria Economic Development Forum going on. So there are, we're trying to build in those kind of financial and fact-finding kind of structures into the relationship, understanding the massively growing prominence of Nigeria going forward that we've already spoken about. So that's maybe looking a bit kind of positive. And otherwise, as David says, I mean, in terms of Kenya, a lot of historic kind of British engagement there and contemporary um, engagement, I should add. And when we nearby, we're thinking of Somalia, Britain's had a significant role in some of the, some of the peace talks in recent years there. And then I go back to the Gulf as I always kind of do. And I think to the, the increasing role of our Emirati, Saudi um, um, and Qatari friends in Somalia and indeed in forging a kind of a peace negotiation, a peace treaty in Ethiopia and Eritrea in recent years. And so there, there's maybe that kind of 
emblematic multilateralism that we need, you know, recognizing that we are not one of the big three anymore or something like that. And that to achieve something meaningful and a meaningful end, we are going to have to work with whatever friends and powers are in place. And if we have the very strong relations that we do in the, in the Gulf monarchies, which we certainly do, and they are increasingly uh, focusing there, then maybe that's some sort of a route to sort of engagement there. Jolene, do you want to come in on this? No, I'm uh, more focusing on Europe. So, right, um, so let me just end with the a... Europeans are in, but um, Africa and other parts of the world should equally be represented, I guess. Absolutely. So let me start with a finish with a very quick question for each of you. If you can give me a short answer. What is the biggest opportunity for global Britain? Oh dear, this isn't good. I suppose ideally it would be a moment to sit back, take stock and follow through both in terms of the, the structure of the working relationships, trying to break down those kinds of silos to try to do something fundamentally different in the way we do business. And maybe out of the, the confl conflagration, that's not the right word, merging um, of DFID and the FCO, maybe that is also a prompt. But again, that must be sort of uh, funded appropriately is the, is the issue. Either of you in my two? opinion, the um, biggest opportunity for Global Britain is that it is really a chance to explain what um, the UK aims to achieve on the international level. Be it vis-a-vis um, -vis its own public, like um, people in the UK, but also um, in, co in a cooperation or in talks with other governments. Because I feel like many or in many European states and also like the key European states, France and Germany, there was kind of the perception of, let's say, what could be described as a strategic void in the UK after Brexit. It was clear the UK is out, but you have no idea where they are going. So in my opinion, Global Britain can be an important opportunity to outline where the UK sees itself also in bilateral relations and its structures like the EU. Brilliant. David? It's to take the cogent analysis that is set out in the integrated review of the threats and challenges facing the United Kingdom and put together a deliverable, detailed plan of action, you know, a, a, a st strategic plan stretching forward over the next 20 years and then backed up by um, a, a Whitehall system that then measures progress against uh, those strategic objectives and adjusts each year for the uh, for international events as they as they take place and unfold um, and, and to put in place the machinery of government in Whitehall that enables us to monitor those developments, to deliver on that strategy um, month by month, year by year, and insists that there is sufficient senior official and ministerial time devoted to doing it properly. Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, we've run out of time, I'm afraid. Uh, my apologies for the earlier technical difficulties. My apologies, too, for looking, as several of you have been kind enough to point out, like I'm sat in a windowless cell with no lights. That's because I am indeed sat in a windowless cell with new lights. Feel free 
to start a petition to King's College to get me a better office if you'd like. Uh, but without further ado, let me just express my heartfelt thanks to Jazine, David and David for taking the time to be with us today. Do please have a look at the report and let us know what you think of it. It's available on our website now. And as I said before, uh, we've got an event on Thursday on the German elections and starting from Monday, we have uh, a whole host of events coming from Labour and then the Tory party conference. So do please tune in for those or watch the video recordings of them. But for the moment, thank you all three of you very, very much indeed. I thought that was absolutely fascinating. Kind of you to take the time and I'll see you all soon. All the very best. Bye bye.